everyone, and welcome to Jowl of the Month Club. I'm your host, Diana Koch. On this episode, we're talking all about video nasties and dissecting Mario Bava's brutal giallo, A Bay of Blood. Often considered Bava's most influential film and the one that started the slasher genre, A Bay of Blood was marketed the second film rated V for violence during its first release. Today, I am joined by a first-time guest. He's a festival friend, a film critic at Film Snob Reviews, and the co-host of the Snobcast podcast. Please welcome to Jollo Month Club, William Eggizabo. Hey, thanks for having me, man. If you haven't seen uh, her episode of our podcast, definitely should. We talk all about Jollos and the history and all of that. And yeah, V for Violence. I love it. I love the, uh, I'll get into it later, but that's not even the original title of the movie. Apparently, it's the movie with the most alternate titles. Yeah, it's like eight or nine. Yeah, so when I was a guest on your podcast a few months ago, we were talking all about Jalo, and you proposed a question to me. It was super interesting. You asked me about, like, Jolly and which ones were on the Video Nasties list, and at the time, I had no idea. Come to find out, my favorite Jalo, Tenebrae, is on the Video Nasties list. So I am really looking forward to discussing this topic today. Yeah, there's a lot of movies on this list, um, and there's three different categories for the video nasties. There's some that were persecuted, some that were not, and some that were not even allowed to have, but they weren't persecuted. Like, if you had them, you would get, like, fined. Um, so before we dive into this 1971 film, have you been watching anything currently in 2022? Yeah, I've watched a lot of stuff. I'm still catching up on Tribeca and, like, streaming stuff. Not a lot of horror, not a lot of good stuff coming out there. Um, but I did, I did see the Reading Rainbow documentary at Tribeca, and when you're of a certain age, that it sort of gets to you. It's really good. Ooh, is that just playing festivals, or is that out streaming now? Uh, it's not out streaming yet. It was at Tribeca, and that's where I saw it, and I really enjoyed that. I did see what else have I really enjoyed? Uh, there's not been a lot that I really, really enjoyed, like conclusively can say man that's amazing been a lot of documentaries like fire of love is another good doc that i saw at sundance i don't know if you saw it but it's really good were there any like first time watches of yours that maybe are not from this year but just like movies that you've just been meaning to watch that were surprising yes um this is one of them actually uh we're going to talk about and then um for my podcast i never i'd never seen seven year itch all the way through so i watched that billy wilder seven year itch and then I watched, um, another really good one was, um, uh, Chico and Rita. Okay. It's a rotoscoped animated film that I'm watching for this month's podcast. And then I rewatched Perfect Blue also, so. Oh, was, love Perfect Blue. Yes, it's coming to Shutter on the 6th, so. <sighs> so good. Joe Bob might talk about it on an episode, because a few episodes back he was talking about anime. Let's hope so, because like I said, they said, uh, Shudder said it was coming out on September 6th. I don't know in what form they're putting it out. They may just have it on streaming. Maybe they'll have to talk about it. That would be really cool, though, having it then. Yeah, that would be awesome. I have not been watching a ton of movies, but I did watch Prey on Hulu. The, the Predator. Yeah, Predator prequel. I really enjoyed that. But I watched another prequel last night, the Orphan prequel. Oh, yes. Okay. I haven't seen it yet. Is it good? It's, uh, enjoyable. <laughs> okay. okay, that tells me what I need to So, the, uh, the first half is not good. It's, it's kind of boring, but then the second half, it really leans into the whole orphan world. It's not 
a great movie, but it's definitely an enjoyable experience, especially if you're looking for something like schlocky and self-aware. I love that. I love that you said it's schlocky and self-aware. Also, shout out to Isabella Furman. She's a, she's a homie. We've interviewed her not, earlier this year. She's the homie. So I saw that BTS photo of everyone wearing these really high boots. And she's like, she's like a grown woman now. Yeah. And like Julia Stiles has these like one foot tall lifts on her shoes. Oh, so she looks, so that she looks taller and then everyone else, like Isabel looks smaller. Well, let's go back a couple decades and talk about a film from 1971, A Bay of Blood, which is what we will call it on this episode, but we'll get into all of those alternate titles. There's so many. This episode will contain spoilers. You can watch A Bay of Blood on Shudder and Canopy. And this is your trigger warning for animal violence and just, you know, regular old slasher jalo violence. Good old fashioned door. <laughs> a Bay of Blood opens with a rich countess being murdered by her husband. Before he can bask in his crime, he is killed by an unknown assailant. To obtain control of the fortune and the bay surrounding a large estate, a killing spree begins in this wild whodunit. The origin of A Bay of Blood was when producer Dino De Laurentiis heard that Dardano Sacchetti, the screenwriter of The Cat O' Nine Tales, had fallen out with the film's director Dario Argento. Dino De Laurentiis then contacted Sacchetti and persuaded him to work with Mario Bava on a Giallo film. Zucchetti and Bava got along so well, and together they came up with a story in which two parents commit murders to secure a better future for their children. In this very early version of the story, the parents are driven to commit one murder after another, becoming so caught up in their plan that they abandon their children for several days. The murders were conceived as isolated sequences They had the idea of hanging someone in a wheelchair. They had the idea of, like, a double spear through the back of two lovers. And there was no idea of how they would fit into an actual story. I can't wait to talk about that spear thing, because there's a lot going on there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And when the film was released in 1971, its gore landed it on the infamous video Nasty List, which you're going to dive into later on this episode. A Bay of Blood was one of the more polished films on this list. I think that it's one of the more well-known. A Bay of Blood's influence can be seen in later American slasher films, most notably Friday the 13th and also the Friday the 13th sequel, Part 2. It also feels like it's less shock and more calculated, but still the violence and the sexuality were deemed too much for those censors of the time. During its release... It's really the violence. Yeah, no, I mean, I was, when we get to, like, the body count, I was very surprised during its original release. One of the promotional gimmicks is that every ticket holder was required to pass through something called the Final Warning Station, where a theater worker had to warn you, face-to-face, that this movie might be the last shock film you will ever want to see. They would hand you, yeah, you would sell your, and they're like, are you sure you want to see it? You might never watch a shocking movie again. I'd be like, two tickets, please. (laughs) (laughs) yeah i'll also take some i'll take tomorrow's showing just just in case just a matinee just a bay of blood includes such jalo elements as a black gloved killer jmb whiskey there's a red telephone which i love because it's very stylish and the voyeuristic pov camera work alternate titles for the film the the pov the voyeurism 
Yeah. Yeah. I had read that where they filmed it, there was not much foliage. So it was just a very, like, sparse area with the trees. So Baba brought in, like, fake tree limbs and branches and put them, like, over the camera (laughs) to make it look like a more wooded area. Yeah, they actually used, like, a children's wagon for the tracking shots. Like, he put the camera in a wagon and he just wheeled it. Yeah, he did that in Blood and Black Lace, too. I think that's, like, his, that's his thing. And we were, like, going on and on about these alternate titles. So a few of them are Carnage, Chain Reaction, Twitch of the Death Nerve, Bloodbath, and The Last House on the Left Part 2, even though it had nothing to do with Wes Craven's The Last House on the Left, which came out a year after this was made. In 72, yeah. And the original title that it was first released was uh, Ecologio Delito, which is uh, Ecology of a Crime. That was the original title when it was first released. That actually makes that sound a little bit less slashery than than it actually is. It sounds kind of smart. Like it, it sounds smart, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was like the first title upon release, and it might have been like a production title. There were three other titles that were the production title that I did not like at all. The Stench of Flesh, Thus Do We Live to Be Evil, and That Will Teach Them to Be Bad. Mm. Those are all horrible, horrible titles. Those are not great. No, I can't. I can't tell you those are great. Thinking, you mentioned Argento and the falling out. He actually owns a, the, one of the original prints of this movie. Argento does? Yeah, he still has it to this day. He took it from a theater, and what they had to do is they had to play a movie I'm going to recommend with this movie in its place because he took the original print at, at one of his theaters. Is it a Baba film? That they I know which one it is. We'll save it, though, Yeah, for your flavor of the month. Yes. Okay, no, exactly. awesome. It's <laughs> as far as cast go, we do have quite a few Italian cinema mainstays in this one. Claudine Uger plays Renata Donati, who is the daughter of the lady that's killed first in the film. She was actually in last month's Jell of the Month, Black Belly of the Tarantula. So I recognized her as soon as she was on screen. I had seen this movie once before, but it had been years, so I actually was surprised by a lot of the stuff that happened. The first time I watched it, I I actually didn't have quite the Jalo knowledge under my belt because I hadn't seen many. So now that I was rewatching it, it felt like a completely different movie to me. Luigi Pastilli plays Albert or Alberto. He's in a bunch of Sergio Martino films like The Case of Scorpion's Tale. There's Black Belly of the Tarantula. So he was also in last month's episode. Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. And The Sweet Body of Deborah, which I would love to review on a future episode of this podcast. The, and the last actress that I'll shout out is also a child actor. They She plays the daughter of two of the characters. Um, It's Nicoletta Elmi, who you would recognize as a little redheaded girl in Deep Red. She's in Footprints on the Moon, Who Saw Her Die. She's a little bit older in Demons in 85. And I love this quote from her. She said, My parents were not at all concerned about their little girl committing murder in films. And apparently they did not mind me watching them either. I love that, that. A Bay of Blood features one kill, roughly six minutes apart, if you're you're doing the math, there are 13 total, to ensure the utmost realism in depicting those 13 murders. Carlo Rimbaldi was hired to provide special makeup effects. Carlo is a three-time Oscar winner. You would recognize his work from Alien and E.T. and a lot of special effects makeup work in Italian cinema in the 70s. 
And I love this fact about Carlo. He had the distinction of being the first special effects artist to be required to prove that his work on film was not real. (laughs) Dog mutilation scenes in 1971's A Lizard in the Woman's Skin were so convincing that its director, Lucio Fulci, was prosecuted for offenses related to animal cruelty. Fulci would have served a two-year prison sentence had Carlo not showcased the film's array of props to a courtroom proving that the scene was not filmed using real animals. You know it's bad when Fulci's getting uh, getting a case against him, because that guy... I mean, if you look at it now, it doesn't look real, but I guess in the time, people uh, were a little bit more squeamish and didn't quite uh, know... They probably didn't know what that was supposed to look like. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to Carlo, Fulci avoided jail time, uh, and he was the first, yeah, the first special effects artist I had to prove this stuff wasn't real. So kind of cool. Then he went on to win some Oscars. So good for him. Our 13 Bay of Blood murders. Yeah, I did want to mention like before, you know, it starts with the first one, right? The first couple. And then there's not another one until like 35 minutes in. It's kind of crazy. It's only an 85 minute movie. And yeah, one kill in the first half hour. Yeah, there's two like the first eight minutes and then it's like takes like 20 minutes off. Yeah, from there, it's like Every two minutes, there's a kill. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so our first murder was very jarring when it happens. There's the Countess in a wheelchair, and she's hung with a noose by her husband. Her feet just, her feet don't work, and so as she, it's not even like it's high to the ground. I want to make sure people understand that. It's like midway through the doorway, like yeah. around her like neck level, and the, yeah. all that happens is that once the chair gets removed, since her legs don't really work, she has no way to fight back. Being hung due to gravity. Yeah, so her body is just the weight of her body is just pulling her down. It's not helping her at all. And that's where we get the black gloved killer. That's the only scene that we really see, like the black leather gloves. We find out, oh, it's her husband. We don't know at the time who the who the person is, but you see it pans back. You see the killer's face, and you're like, oh wow, they're really doing this reveal quite early in the film. Yeah, I was going to say that. Yeah. Yeah. It threw me off. So you see the husband, and then he immediately gets stabbed repeatedly. You don't see that in those type of movies. They take the black glove off, and usually you, get, you just get the gloves, and that's it. Yeah. But as it pans to his face, you're like, who the hell is that guy? Yeah. I struggle with this saying, like, oh, is it a Jalo if you get a reveal so early? Because you don't, then there's no mystery. You know who the killer is. But sometimes you don't know who that person is. It's just, like, a face. You don't know who it is. But here you're like, okay. Wow, that's early. And then he gets it. You're like, whoa, like, is there not going to be any more kills? What's going to happen here? Like, there has to be kills. <laughs> yeah, I was I was worried about that myself. I was like, is this it? Is that all we're getting? And I want to I want to say that it's it was really funny when he walks around because after he did, does it, he walks around the house before he inevitably gets, you know, off himself. You're like, what the hell is he looking for? Who's this guy? How does he just know where everything is? And then as it gets revealed that that it's her husband, you're like, oh. Yeah, that makes sense. But now he's dead. So what's what's happening here? 33 minutes in, we have our third kill, which is a throat slit and hacked with a sickle. Scythe, sickle. It's a bill hook, actually. That's what that thing is called. It's called a bill hook. Um, I want to talk about that because she deserved it for that dancing. Her the, dancing was cringe. There, no enthusiasm. Not an ounce. Not that it was like inappropriate dancing, but like the timing was. She loves attention, apparently. 
obvious. Yeah. Uh, Brunhilda is her is her name. Yeah. yeah. I liked her outfit though. Yeah. I liked the her outfit. Dress. I like the dress. She's the one she's on the cover art. I think she's yeah. the one that's on the cover art, but the kill on the cover is not or like the promotional art is not her actual kill in the movie. Because she's not, not in quite. she's not in the bay. That's actually kind of a cool scene because she's running and she's like almost there. And then she gets it. And she's like trying to put her her clothes back on the whole time she's running. She puts her doesn't she put her shoes on? No, she just okay, doesn't okay. put her unders back on. She doesn't. She does not. I did realize that. Kind of struggling walking with her shoes before the chase. So I'm like, I really hope she did not put her shoes back on again because she can hardly walk. No, she didn't. She didn't have her shoes on with her little baby dress. Was... Two minutes later, Bobby, who is in this group of friends, gets a, it's a bill hook. Bill hook to the face. Bill hook right to the face. What is a billhook? Why is it so, called that? It's, a, it's, it's used for it's used for for fishermen use it. They use mm. it for various things. And the curve is because you use it to open up clams or crab shells. It's hard, so you can hit it, hit things with it, like open an oyster by cracking it. It's really it's an all purpose tool for fishermen. Got it. Perfect sense. You live in like the crab capital. You should know this. I would just say that it was like a sickle. That's what it looked like to me. But maybe I just watched too many horror movies. That's what it is. <laughs> Um, a bill hook, yeah. I think I should start like asking when I go to seafood restaurants, like, what do you call this thing? See if it's a regional thing. Might be. You're probably right about that. This is actually one of the two kills I wanted to kind of expand on. Yeah, double murder. Yeah. Well, I wanted to talk about it. Spear through the back. Denise and Duke are making romantic time together in a bed. Denise is on top. She gets spear through her back, then through Duke, then into the floor. Mm-hmm. That was good. Mm-hmm. Just like in Friday the 13th. So Those many two movies. Kills are Friday the 13th. They were taken right from the movie. Yeah. Well, and I feel like also the bill hook to the face. Like, that one, any movie that's, like, a machete to the face reminds me of this kill. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I that's mean... what it is. It's cool. It's iconic. Yeah, I mean, and then, like you said, this movie is, like, the genesis of the... It's the primordial ooze of the slasher genre, so... Yeah, and I didn't realize that going into it. So, like, like I said, like, I had seen it before. I knew it was slasher-esque. And then after I watched it and I see the spear kill, the bill hook to the face, I'm like, whoa, so many movies have used that, like, frame by frame. Next up, we have something that's, like, a little less bloody than a spear or a bill hook to the face. We have Paolo, who is strangled by Albert with a telephone cord, and that's an hour into the film. Yeah, that one was good. Like, you could see, it might have been just the actor's eyes between themselves, but they were really... The eyes really showed you that he's struggling to breathe with that cord around his neck. It was really well done. Besides Brunhilde, I think a lot of the kills and the reaction shots were pretty realistic. Brunhilde, you could see breathing after she was supposed to be dead. <laughs> she was still breathing. <laughs> and then her, her head goes down, you're like, oh, well, Mario, you could have done better with that. Yeah, you could have did. I mean, he had a, like a second cameraman, too, so I don't know what happened to that extra footage of her. I don't know. Maybe she was only on set for a day. 
Next up, we get a decapitation with an axe. Yeah, that was cool. Yes. Anna, which is Paolo's wife, and I wanted to talk about Laura Betty, the actress who plays Anna. I thought her her primary scene, the first scene she's in, She's overacting the shit out of it, and it really annoyed me for, like, the first five minutes she was on screen. Like, the spooky neighbor? Yeah. Paula's wife. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Are they just nosy, or are they involved, and you don't really know, but once they get killed, you're like, okay, and then the murders keep happening, you're like, okay, that's just, like, a red herring. Or not. Yeah, Paolo was the biggest red herring. Yeah. Paolo, because they had him, like, feeling like he might have done something, even though he didn't do anything. Yeah. Next up, we have another strangulation- Laura is strangled to death by Simon? Yeah. It's a pretty cool setup. Yeah, it was cool. It's his fisherman shack. That's where it is. He lives there. Yeah. Did you guess the bloodline link with Simon earlier in the film? No, because I I didn't want to think about it at all. I was like, just let me see how it plays out. I didn't even try to think about it. When they talk about him originally earlier in the film, I think it might be... Paulo talking to Alberto, maybe Renata. The way he describes Simon is very much the way <laughs> it just seemed like, oh, he's describing this Countess had a relationship with whoever, and and now Simon lives in this fisherman shack next to the bay where she can keep her eye on him. I'm like, oh, that's because that's her kid, right? <laughs> another obstacle in Renata and Alberto's way. It just had, yeah, it just had to be another another one. Simon gets it after he strangles Laura. He's speared through the stomach by Alberto. And this is about 10 minutes before the end of the movie. So it's yeah. really like ramping up. You're trying to figure out the end game. Kill 11 is Franco Ventura, who's an architect neighbor who... He wanted to, like, commercialize the bay? Yeah, he wanted to buy it so that they could commercialize it, but, yeah. you know, the Countess, who was our first kill, did not want to sell it to him because he is an asshole. She shouldn't have mm-hmm. to. <laughs> and no. she's she's supposed to be very old, so couldn't he wait it till she died and maybe, like, her children or her daughter is a little bit more pliable and he can maybe get his fingers in with her to, to flip the property. Maybe he was assuming she was... That was a smarter play. Yeah, maybe he was assuming that she was um, so old and so out of it that she would not know what she was doing and she would just sign off on the papers. Who knows? He gets it. He gets stabbed with scissors slash... Was it a butterfly knife or scissors? By it Alberto. was the same scissors that uh, Renata had earlier stabbed him with. Yeah, yeah. So he ends up getting um, stabbed to death with those scissors. Then next up, oh, we have the last two kills. Very shocking. So everything's winding down. All of the red herrings killed. We have two lone survivors who we figure out all along. We're also trying to get this fortune. It's the Countess's daughter, Renata, and her husband, Alberto. They're at their car, they're wiping their hands clean of the mess, and they're thinking, you know, everything's going to get blamed on Simon, and we're we're in the clear. I should have mentioned a while ago that there were these two children that they left in a their trailer, their RV, while they were committing all of these murders, and all of a sudden you get a... What, what do the kids say? They're like, Mom! Dad! And then 
They turn their heads and they, yeah, and each of the children shoots one of the parents with a shotgun. Totally shocking because you forget the kids are there because they're not, they're in one scene 45 minutes to an hour ago. Yeah. And then I see it's a little girl from, little creepy girl from Deep Red. (laughs) I'm like, oh man, of course it's that little ginger girl. So the parents are dead, shot to death. They're not getting anything. The kids say, mommy and daddy are really good at playing dead. And then they go skipping to the bay, holding hands and giggling and not even realizing that they actually killed their parents. The end. But now they get the bay. And it's a little foreshadowed, though. It's a little foreshadowed. How so? So there's that scene where we, the second time we see the kids, he drops the head breaks it, he's picking up the pieces of the head. Like if the kid broke something, like he mm. destroyed something. Mm-hmm. And then, I, I'm gonna tell you, I hated the ending, but I also liked it a lot. <laughs> I liked it. Just for the line. Just for the line. They're really good at playing dead. Yeah. I was like... Yeah, and then just like the do-do-do-do-do, them like skipping off, and then you, you see the a state in the bay like kind of pans out you see the state in the bay and you're thinking these little shits are going to inherit all of that <laughs> but i don't know i don't know if they really no 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 i guess it's up for debate if they knew what they were doing they say they're really good at playing dead but they could be sociopaths <laughs> yeah and that's highly likely it's highly likely given their parents are also sociopaths so all right well Let's get in our overall thoughts about the film. The cinematography, I liked, there were a few shots where it cut away um, really abruptly, but I think it's mainly because the budget was extremely low. Um, it had to be shot quickly. So there's, you know, the shot of Brunhilde where she is seen breathing, although she's supposed to be dead. There's a, there's a lot of shots where they could have benefited from, you know, a longer shoot, a couple more takes. That would have been great. Baba, he acted as his own cinematographer, and I think it really benefits from that. Though it was Mario Baba's personal favorite film, A Bay of Blood was greeted with extreme disappointment um, and controversy by several critics, especially those who were a fan of his first few films, his earlier, like, more restrained films. When Christopher Lee first saw the film, season actor Christopher Lee, he reportedly was so disgusted at the level of violence that he left the theater in protest. There's not a ton of story. It's all about the kills and the violence. To me, I feel like it's much more of a mystery thriller than it gets credit for. Again, my first watch, I walked away thinking it's a slasher, but now I have more knowledge of the Jolly genre. I think that it really is a mystery thriller at heart. There's constant red herrings. There's constant mystery. It's mostly a straightforward Jolly until some like the broader plot points are spelled out for the audience. The constant change in killer kept me on my toes, and I think that the shocking ending is extremely fitting for a film that's as twisted as this one. It's a very, very dark ending. Um, And the characters are about as appalling as anyone can get, so the ending works, because you're not cheering for those people that are supposedly winning at the end. Mario Bava's gift for making the macabre look beautiful on screen, it really comes alive with the stylized kills and the atmospheric mood. Uh, Even though it wasn't shot in the woods, it feels like you're in this lush woods and you're in this secluded environment. 
Um, and I love the cheeky, cheeky ending. Like, that's, that's just, like, one of my, <laughs> my favorite parts. Um, overall, the movie kept me engaged, and I was ready to find out who the killer was, who was going to get the money, and what's going to happen to those kids. Yeah, I loved it. Like, I, I got to touch on the cinematography, because I thought him being his own cinematographer was a great decision, because it, it, at all those shots, he was able to take some risks with them. You know what I mean? There's that shot where... He passes by the broken red window, and then there's that shattered piece of glass, and the camera pan is out, and he passes through it. There was a lot of like scenes where you're like, "That's such a good shot, man." You yeah. probably did that in two takes. That's so that that means he had it in his head the whole time. Yeah, and that just shows the genius of Baba as a as a vision as a visionary director, yeah. which you have to have in order to to make something like this. You have to have in your head what it's going to look like, and I think he has storyboards in his brain, and it just sort of worked. I do want to say there was a little bit too much flute in the score for me, but that, that, it's a, it's a, it felt very late 60s with the soundtrack, yeah. and I was like, oh, I don't like this flute. It could it could have been a juxtaposition yeah. for the audience. Like, look at these happy-go-lucky teenagers. They're going to get murdered uh, in various ways. Yes. Have fun with that. Maybe that's what he was going for, because I felt like I was listening to, like, uh, Jethro Tull. felt like Jethro Tull. I was like, I hate this already. And I don't want to be here for this. But I, like I said, I loved the movie. Uh, I didn't expect to. I was like, this is going to be trash. Uh, but I loved it. I was like, this is the exact amount of mystery that I want out of a Jalo. This is the exact amount of murder that I want. And these are the kind of kills that I want. Because it, it, I'd seen it all before, but it felt like that's where it all came from. And when you're talking about Baba storyboarding all of those amazing shots that he's doing, I'm also thinking... Being the genius that he is, probably when they were storyboarding these murders, he probably had in his head the shots, how he wanted to execute these on film. Have you seen Blood and Black Lace? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna suggest you watch that one. I actually watched it after you recommended it on my my podcast. (laughs) I I went and watched it. I was like, I'm gonna go see this, and that's what made me like more excited to watch this one. I was like. All right, I didn't hate that one, so maybe I'll hate this one less. It was good. I, I, I enjoyed it. And like I said, the, one of the coolest things for me about watching something like this is it's not something that I would normally pick for myself, but it's right up my alley with, with, with what would be my taste in horror films. Do you know what I mean? In like slasher horror films, I would, I would pick something like this that has that, has that tinge of mystery in it suspense to it very hitchcockian yeah as i'm as i'm watching this and as they're formulating their red herrings and like i mentioned earlier paolo seemed to be like the red herring like he was this weird guy who liked to kill bugs and you know uh all that you you, you know that baba really regretted that scene with the with the cockroach right yeah it's just it's a really entertaining film and i didn't expect that i expected it to be this like because a lot of times i watched jellos and they're kind of stuffy they're kind of difficult to get into sort of trigonometry mm-hmm. when you watch them but this one was easy it was just like i turned it on i understood what was happening from the beginning it's beautiful it has a noir feel from the start that first scene is very like film noirish, and i loved that it all just coalesced for me and uh you know i loved the usage of blood like when simon gets hit by the spear and he just yeah. You go like four feet and hits uh, Alberto in the hand. The, uh, when Brunhilde's, you know, struggling to breathe toward the end, she's just like 
bleeding. Yeah. And all the blood's different colors, too. Like, it's different shades of red, which I think is really cool. Which, Jay, you don't see that often, either. No, no. You typically see that really, like, orangey, thick, really fake, especially in that day, um, of the day. Widely considered Baba's most violent film, A Bay of Blood's emphasis on graphic murder was hugely influential in the slasher subgenre that would follow a decade later. The vast body count and intense violence also landed this on UK's Video Nasties list. William, would you mind diving into that list and exactly why A Bay of Blood ended up on it? Video Nasties was a code name for the obscene uh, movies that did not pass the Obscene Publications Act in the United Kingdom. There were initially 72 films that broke it. Uh, it was the public, uh, Obscene Publications Act of 1959. And this was basically determined by the National Viewer and Listeners Association, the NVLA. They basically determined what was and wasn't offensive. However, their, their guidelines weren't very, how do I put this, good? Like, they didn't understand what was indecent and what wasn't. And that led to a lot of the movies that they had on their list, the initial 72 falling into a couple of different categories. Um, there was two separate, I guess, reckonings, you could get, you could say 72 initially, and then an additional 82. The thing is, they didn't come up with a definition of obscene until 1984. There was a list of 72, and they added 10 more, or they added an additional 80? No, they added additional 82. Whoa. Yeah, is that so also considered the Video Nasties list? No, the okay. original 72 are considered the original, but of those 72, only 39 of them were prosecuted as banned and not watchable, and also you could be fined for having them. A Bay of Blood was one of those, and it was due to its graphic violence. Um, it was refused certification initially, because that's why I went on the list. It had 43 seconds cut, and then it was released in 1994, and it just got un uh, an uncut release. In 2010, finally. A lot of these films got uncut releases sometime around 2008, 2009, 2010. Because the uh, rules for obscenity are la more lax now than they were back in the 70s in Reagan era. Do you know if that, those releases are just in the UK? The, unre like, the unrated releases are no. just wide, widespread? No. No, it's actually most of the... Uh, well, even Ireland. Uh, a lot of them, uh, the initial 80... The, the secondary 82 never got released in Ireland. They were like, oh, we like that. We're going to go ahead and do that. Um, but the 32 that got prosecuted, um, you could face a fine or jail time if you had a print. And if they found you with a print, they were allowed to confiscate it. There was 33 that were non-prosecutable, where if you had it, you weren't allowed to distribute it. Um, and then of the secondary 82, none could be confiscated. Um, there are five films that were banned. Outright, but weren't classified as video nasties. The Exorcist is actually on that list. So there's a ton of uh, of stuff that the British Board of Film Censors, later called the British Board, uh, Board of Film Classification, really went through to get these things not seen by children. Uh, the problem was that they made distribution of 15 and 18 rated films actual criminal offense. You could literally just like the gloves are the handcuffs are going on. You're going to jail. For distributing obscure, uh, obscene materials. Did this ruling or this law, did that cover the filmmakers? Like, were the filmmakers also prosecuted? Or is it just, like, video stores and people that had, like, hard copies of the film? And that was dependent on the film itself, actually, because Cannibal, uh, Cannibal Holocaust is a great example of the director almost going to jail in France for murder. 
Mm. So it just depended on the film itself, but mostly it was the distribution of these materials uh, because the actual contraband was the videotapes themselves. It wasn't the movie or the, or the reels. That's what would get you in trouble, not the actual making of the film. Because Very a, a great example that I would use is like you could make a porn film in the 80s, but you couldn't just, there was only certain ways you could distribute it. These were treated like that. Bay of Blood wasn't that bad. <laughs> No, it wasn't. It just had violence. Like, you would think that it would have to be really extremely over-the-top. Nudity everywhere, sex everywhere, violence everywhere, animal cruelty. Be so over-the-top to get on this list. I mean, it has quite a few of those. There's nudity. I mean, Brunhilde's out there showing us all the schnitzel. Uh, (laughs) All of her schnitzel. (laughs) All the schnitzel. Anna's death is really, really graphic. That beheading was actually ridiculously cool. But it was ridiculous as well. Um, there's a lot of blood in the movie, so I can sort of see, but I'm not conservative enough to be like, no, definitely deserved it now. Yeah. It, that, it was, it was very much like slasher life. Was A Bay of Blood already out for some time before it ended up on this list? Three years. It was like 74. Okay. Putting these out, yeah. So it already then, had distribution, it was already in the hands of people, and then now you have this agency investigating who actually has these films. Yeah, Have you ever seen the movie Censor? <laughs> yes. So that's what, the, that's what that movie's about. Yeah. She's one of those people yeah. whose job it is to rate these films as good or as certified or not. Mm-hmm. And obviously in the movie she allows some uncertified movies to, or some movies that should be certified to get through. And that was the potential danger of it was all oh, these films could harm our children because there was a lot of people doing copycat murders and Right, you know, right. And they wanted to, they needed to blame something. And as we do here in the United States, we blamed our media. So what would you say were the specifics that put a Bay of Blood on the video nasties list? Definitely the beheading and the, the nudity. That, those are the two things that I think got it there. And the number of kills. I think the number of on-screen deaths being over 10 was a lot for back then. Now we have body counts. Well, in that smaller list that A Bay of Blood ended up on, like the 30-some 30, 30 list, did you yeah. sense a pattern in, like, the type of films that were on that list? I actually have the list right here, so I knew okay. you were going to ask about okay. that, and so I have it here. Because I'm going to put basically, all of those on my letterbox watch list. <laughs> yeah, basically, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of Italian films. There's a lot of Italian films and a lot of German films, uh, but made by Italians. <laughs> yeah, like uh, Gestapo's last orgies on there. I spit on your grave is on there. Okay, duh. Yeah, last house on the left is on there. Uh, there's a lot of uh, extraordinarily violent. Don't go into the woods is a terrible film, but it's on there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not even scary. Like don't go into the woods is not scary, but it's it's on there. Yeah, Faces of Death, Tenebrae. Obviously, you know why Tenebrae's on there. Amazing. I don't know if it should be though, but it's a great film. And I see why it's one of your favorites because it's really good. Do you see my back? Do you see my background? That's why. Yes. yes. <laughs> my background is the infamous arm scene. Listeners that cannot see. I love that. I looked at that. I was like, I love it. I love it. Uh, zombie flesh eaters, which is also called Zombie Two. There's mm-hmm. a lot of really terrible movies on this list, but there's also extraordinarily violent. The funny thing is, if you look at the films that were not categorized as video nasties, I told you there was about eight. Basket Case is one of them. <laughs> it's really funny because the it's other films It's that smutty, that's why. It's very smutty. Yeah. yeah. A Clockwork Orange was banned. That that was for different reasons. Mm-hmm. 
Child's Play 3, The Exorcist, Last House on the Dead End Street, which is a terrible movie, mm-hmm. and Scum. Scum is another one of the movies. It was not a video nasty, but it was also banned by the BBC, so. Oh, all these movies that I saw at a very young age ended up oh, on this Straw list. Dogs. Straw Dogs is another one. It was on the list, but not, it was banned, but not listed as a video nasty as well. But yeah, we know why. Yeah, rape scenes and ugh, gross stuff. Yeah, it's a gross one. Do you have any flavor of the month picks? So anything that you feel would pair well with a Bay of Blood, whether it's a movie, a book, music. I'll give you two. I'll give you. A, I'll give you an album, and I'll give you um, an, a musical album, and I'll give you a, a movie. Uh, Hatchet for the Honeymoon is the movie pick. It's an earlier Bob film. He also has Lauren Batty, who plays Anna, and she's in that movie as well. Yeah, I like this one. I've seen it, and it was one of the. It was like the only Mario Bava movie I'd seen before. I saw the two that you recommended, mm-hmm. which is this one and Black Lace. And then my album is going, I would, I'm going to recommend um, Ice Nine Kills' uh, Silver Screen because Halloween's coming up and all the songs are about horror movies. So so my Flavor of the Month pick is a movie that uh, came out last year. It's called Censor. Yes! <laughs> I did it! <laughs> I'm like, oh man, I hope that he doesn't put that on his list or mention it. Oh, he did. Oh, that's okay though. It's a British psychological horror film that's set in 1985 during the height of the video nasty controversy. After viewing a strangely familiar video nasty film, a film censor sets out to solve the past mystery of her sister's disappearance, embarking on a quest that dissolves the line between fiction and reality. That's one of my favorite parts of this film is that dreamlike world that's built within this film that is based on something that's real. Sensor is now streaming on Hulu, so if you have Hulu, you can watch it right now. I love Sensor. I do. It's such a beautiful film, too. It has the look of the time, but it's really beautiful, and like the costuming is very much on point, and some of the camera work's very interesting. I liked that a lot. I saw it, what, last year at, what did I, Sundance, maybe? Yeah, it was at Sundance yeah. last year. Hor- uh, there's a YouTube channel called Horrible Reviews. He does an entire series on the video nasties that I would recommend to anybody who wants to learn more about the stuff or who wants to learn more about the movies that are included in there mm-hmm. and the history of the video nasties. It's like a 10-part thing, and each video is like 20 minutes. He specializes in films that are violent, disgusting, banned, um, that sort of thing, and I would recommend his series on the video nasties for sure. It's called Horrible Reviews. He's a Dutch YouTuber, but okay. he speaks English. Awesome. William, is there anything that you would like to plug or promote while I have you here on Jollo of the Month Club? Our podcast, obviously, is called The Snobcast. This month's episode was about Billy, it was a director spotlight on Billy Wilder. Um, and next month, I can't tell you what we're doing, but you're going to have to listen. If you go to a, our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, there's a uh, link tree that has all of our links on it, and we would love for you to link, to like, subscribe on our YouTube channel to catch our interviews, which I just did a great interview this morning with Erica Nix, who's a director of a movie called Erica's First Holy Shit that comes out on Friday in the, uh, at the Austin Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. She lives in Austin, so we'll be seeing her next month. Yeah, I also got to interview Michael Shannon earlier this year, so I hope you guys will check that out on the, our YouTube channel. The Michael Shannon? Absolutely, yes. That's the very same one. Uh, so if you guys would subscribe to our channel, we would love that. And then obviously you can like and like us everywhere, Twitch, Twitter, 
Instagram, Facebook, whatever, all those places that you go to. And then obviously our podcast, Snopcast, is on everywhere you can listen to podcasts. That's Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, blah, 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 all that stuff. What's the handle for social media? At Film Snob Reviews, that's three words, F-I-L-M-S-N-O-B-R-E-V-I-E-W-S, Film Snob Reviews. You just talked about Austin, and I wanted to blog and promote Fantastic Fest, which is happening a month from now, uh, September 22nd to the 29th in Austin, Texas, at the Alamo Draft House, South Lamar. Fantastic Fest is the largest genre, genre horror, yeah, just festival. genre film festival, sci-fi, horror, foreign, independent, animated, all the good stuff is there. Jalo the Month Club is now on Letterboxd. You can follow the list titled Jalo the Month Club for every movie reviewed on the podcast. You can follow Jalo the Month Club on Twitter and Instagram at Jalo Club. Logo design is by Vegan Patches on Instagram. Amazing theme music is by Dream Division. You can find Dream Division's music on Instagram at Dream Division Music and on Bandcamp at DreamDivision.bandcamp.com. And you can follow your host, Diana, on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd at Diana and K. You guys should all do that because I do that. I actually left a five star review and I subscribe to the podcast and I follow her everywhere. So you guys should do it too. <laughs> uh, you know, you guys are cooler than me. So. <laughs> Thank you for being here. I think that it was uh, a good movie to pivot from our conversation a few months ago. We we're talking all the things Jalo. It's a good episode. I really, like, honestly, after you got off, Shay told us, she's like, I love her. I would like to be on another episode. If you want to do, like, a Jalo July every year or Jalo January, like, feel free to well, pick October's a movie. Well, coming up, and that's horror season. Yeah. And, you know, as the Misfits said, we're all about that horror business. As always, thank you for listening to Jalo Month Club. I'm your host, Diana Koch. And this has been William Eggsell from FilmSnobReviews.com.